This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Every month, we ask a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. Today, we'll hear a story by William Trevor from 1993 called A Day. It was in France, in the Hotel St. George, during their September holiday seven years ago that Mrs. Lethwes found out about her husband's other woman. A Day was chosen from the New Yorker archives by Jhumpa Lahiri, whose short stories have been appearing in the magazine since 1998. She won the Pulitzer Prize in 2000 for her first book, a collection of stories entitled Interpreter of Maladies. Her third book, Unaccustomed Earth, is coming out in the spring. Welcome to the program, Jhumpa. Thank you. Uh, the New Yorker's been publishing William Trevor since the late 70s. Did you first read him in the magazine? I didn't. A friend recommended him, and this was right around the time that I was trying to write fiction or just sort of getting my bearings. And um, when you were in college? or you This was, no, I, I was probably mid-20s around then. And um, so I got the big orange collected stories, but I was also receiving The New Yorker. And I remember this story from the magazine. Mm -hmm. I remember how deeply saddened I was, and it really stayed with me mm -hmm. that um, the imagery, and, and but also more generally, the, the discomfort I felt uh, when I read the story that, mm -hmm. for, for this woman. The story's about a, a day in the life of a woman, a wife, a housewife, watching television, of dealing with her housekeeper, preparing dinner for her husband while at the same time many other things are going on for her emotionally. Is there anything else about the story that you think we should know before we hear it? There's a very interesting complexity to the story because it's taking place in the present day and also reaching deeply into the past, and there's a lot of scenes that the woman is imagining. There's a sort of fantasy component um, that's never entirely clear whether we're in fantasy land. Or yeah, and it, it sort of slips without any real cues. So, you know, it asks the reader to be on his or her toes. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, all of these things that I was learning when I was first in a creative writing program for a year and sort of being taught the nuts and bolts of how to tell a story and, and to stay away from things like flashbacks and sudden dips into other people's points of view and... Really, this is a kind of story that breaks every single rule, and yet it seems so seamlessly and plainly constructed. And I think that's what is always so interesting to me, to me about Trevor, that there's nothing bland or plain about his work, and yet there's a gentleness, a reassuring quality that doesn't tax the reader, if that mm -hmm. makes sense. And, and, you know, in a good way. I mean, it's a very... Yeah. It's so comforting. It's such an embrace to read his his work. I mean, I, I would be lost without his work to turn to. We'll talk more about the story later. Now here's Jhumpa Lahiri reading A Day by William Trevor. In the night, Mrs. Lethwes wakes from time to time, turns and murmurs in her blue-quilted twin bed, is aware of fleeting thoughts and fragments of memory that dissipate swiftly. Within her stomach, Food recently consumed is uneasily digested. Briefly, she suffers a moment of cramp. Mrs. Lethwest dreams. A child again, she remains in the car while her brother Charlie visits the Indian family who run the supermarket. Kittens creep from beneath inverted flower pots in the bunch's backyard, and she is there in the yard too, looking for Charlie because he is visiting the bunches now. You mustn't go bothering the bunches, their mother upbraids them. People are busy. There are rivers to cross and the streets aren't there anymore. 
there is a seashore and tents. In her garden, while Mrs. Lethwest still sleeps, the scent of nightstock fades with the cool of night. Dew forms on roses and geraniums, on the petals of the cosmos and the yellow spikes of broom. Slugs creep toward lettuce plants, avoiding a line of virulent bait. A silent cat, far outside its own domain, waits for the emergence of the rockery mice. It is July. Dawn comes early, casting a pale twilight on the brick of the house, on the Virginia creeper that covers half a wall, setting off white-painted window frames and decorative wrought iron. This house and garden, in a tranquil wooded neighborhood, constitute one part of the achievement of Mrs. Lethwes's husband, are a symbol of professional advancement conducted over twenty years, which happens also to be the length of this marriage. Abruptly, Mrs. Lethwes is fully awake and knows her night's sleep is over. Hunched beneath the bedclothes in the other bed, her husband does not stir when she rises and crosses the room they share to the window. Drawing aside the edge of a curtain, she glances down into the early morning garden and almost at once drops the curtain back into place. In bed again, she lies on her side, facing her husband because, being fond of him, she likes to watch him sleeping. She feels blurred and headachy, as she always does at this time, the worst moment of her day, Mrs. Lethwes considers. Is Elspeth awake, too? She wonders that. Does Elspeth, in her city precinct, share the same pale shade of dawn? Is there, as well, the orange glow of a street lamp, and now, beginning in the distance somewhere, the soft swish of a milk dray, a car door banging, a church bell chiming five? Mrs. Lethwest doesn't know where Elspeth lives precisely, or in any way what she looks like, but imagines short black hair and elfin features, a small, thin body, fragile fingers. An hour and three-quarters later, still conducting this morning ritual, she hears bathwater running, and later still there is music. Vivaldi, Mrs. Lethwest thinks. Her husband wakes, his eyes remember, becoming troubled, and then the trouble lifts from them when he notices without surprise that she's not asleep. In another of her dreams during the night that has passed, he has carried her, and his voice spoke softly, soothing her. Or was it quite a dream, or only something like one? She tries to smile. She says she's sorry, knowing now. At ten, when the cleaning woman comes, Mrs. Lethwest goes out to shop. She parks her small white Peugeot in the Waitrose car park, and in a leisurely manner gathers vegetables and fruit, and tins and jars, pork chops for this evening, vermouth and Gordon's gin, Edam, and Normandy butter because she has noticed the butter is getting low, comfort and the cereal her husband favors, the one called common sense. Afterward, with everything in the boot, she makes her way to the trompe l'oeil for coffee. Her makeup is in place, her hair drawn up, the way she has taken to wearing it lately. She smiles at people she knows by sight, the waitress and other women who are having coffee, at the cashier when she pays her bill. There is some conversation about the weather. In her garden, later, the sound of the hoover reaches her from the open windows of the house as the cleaning woman, Marietta, moves from room to room. The day is warm, Mrs. Lethwes's legs are bare, her blue dress light on her body, her Italian sandals comfortable, yet elegant. Marietta claims to be Italian also, having had an Italian mother, but her voice and manner are cockney, and Mrs. Lethwes doubts that she has ever been in Italy, even though she regularly gives the impression that she knows Venice well. Mrs. Lethwes likes to be occupied when Marietta comes. When it's fine, she finds something to do in the garden, 
and when the weather doesn't permit that, she lingers for longer in the trompe l'oeil, and there's the pretense of letter-writing or tidying drawers. She likes to keep a closed door between herself and Marietta, to avoid as best she can the latest about Marietta's daughter Ange and Liam, whom Ange has been contemplating marriage with for almost five years, and the latest about the people in the house next door, who keep Alsatians. In the garden, Mrs. Lethwest weaves a flower bed, wishing that Marietta didn't have to come to the house three times a week, but knowing that of course she must. She hopes the little heart-leafed things she's clearing from among the delphiniums are not the germination of seeds that Mr. Yatt has sown, a misfortune that occurred last year with his Welsh poppies. Unlike Marietta, Mr. Yatt is dour and rarely speaks, but he has a way of slowly raising his head and staring, which Mrs. Lethwest finds disconcerting. When he's in the garden, Mondays only, all day, she keeps out of it herself. Not Vivaldi now, perhaps a Telemann minuet, runs Mrs. Lethwis's thoughts in her garden. Once, curious about the music of Flautus plays, she read the information that accompanied half a dozen compact discs in a music shop. She didn't buy the discs, but, curious again, she borrowed some from the music section of the library and played them all one morning. Thirty-six, or just a little younger, she sees Elspeth as, unmarried, of course, and longing to bear the child of the man she loves. Mrs. Lethwest is certain of that, since she has experienced this same longing herself. In the flat, she imagines, there's a smell of freshly made coffee. The fragile fingers cease their movement. The instrument is laid aside, the coffee poured. It was in France, in the Hotel St. George, during their September holiday seven years ago, that Mrs. Lethwest found out about her husband's other woman. There was a letter, round feminine handwriting, on an airmail envelope, an English stamp, she knew at once. The letter had been placed in someone else's key box by mistake and was later handed to her with a palaver of apologies when her husband was swimming in the Mediterranean. Ah, merci, she thanked the smooth-haired girl receptionist and said the error didn't matter in the very least. She knew at once the instinct of a barren wife, she afterwards called it to herself. So this was why he made a point of being down before her every morning, why he had always done so during their September holiday in France. She'd never wondered about it before. On the terrace, she examined the postmark. It was indecipherable, but again the handwriting told a lot, and only a woman with whom a man had an association would write to him on holiday. From the letter itself, which she read and then destroyed, she learned all there was otherwise to know. There are too many of the heart-leafed plants, and when she looks in other areas of the border and in other beds, she finds they're not in evidence there. Clearly it's the tragedy of the Welsh poppies all over again. Mrs. Lethwest begins to put back what she has taken out, knowing as she does so that this isn't going to work. Silly girl, I said straight to her face. Silly girl, Ange, no way you're not. Marietta has established herself at the kitchen table, her shapeless bulk straining the seams of a pink overall her feet temporarily removed from the carpet slippers she brings with her because they're comfortable to work in. No, not for me, thanks, Mrs. Lethwest says, which is what she always says when she is offered instant coffee at midday. Real coffee doesn't agree with Marietta, never has, toxic in Marietta's view. All she gives a giggle, that's Ange all over that, always has been. This woman has watched Ange's puppy fat go, has seen her through childhood illnesses, and Bernardo, too, this woman could have had a dozen children, borne them and nursed them, loved them and been loved herself. Well, I drew a halt at two, dear. Drew the line, know what I mean? 
He said have another go, but I couldn't agree. Five goes Mrs. Lethwes has had herself. Five failures, in bed for every day the third and fourth time, told she mustn't try again, but she did. The same age she was then, as she imagines her husband's other woman to be. Thirty-six, when she finally accepted that she was a childless wife. Decent a bloke as ever walked a street as little Liam, but Ange don't see it. One day she'll look up and he'll be gone and away. Talking to a wall you are. Is Ange in love, though? Call it how you like, dear. Mention it to Ange and all she gives a giggle. Well, Liam small, a little fellow, but then where's the harm in small? Washing traces of soil from her hands at the sink, Mrs. Lethwest says there is no harm in a person being small. Hardly five foot, she has many times heard Liam is, but strong as a horse. I said it to her straight, dear. Wait for some bruiser and you'll build your life on regrets. No good to no one regrets. No good at all. Of course was what she'd thought on the terrace of the Hotel St. George. A childless marriage was a disappointment for any man. She'd failed him, although naturally it had never been said. He wasn't in the least like that. But she had failed, and had compounded her failure by turning away from talk of adoption. She had no feeling for the idea. She wasn't the kind to take on other people's kids. Their own particular children were the children she wanted, an expression of their love, an expression of their marriage. More and more she'd got that into her head. When the letter arrived at the Hotel St. George, she'd been reconciled for years to her barren state. They lived with it, or so she thought. The letter changed everything. The letter frightened her. She should have known. We need the window cleaners one of them days, Marietta says, dipping a biscuit into her coffee. Shocking the upstairs pains is. I'll ring them. Didn't mind me mentioning it, dear. Only with the build-up it works out twice the price. No saving, really. Actually, I forget. I wasn't trying to. Best done regular, I always say. I'll ring them this afternoon. Mrs. Lethwes said nothing in the Hotel St. George, and she hasn't since. He doesn't know she knows. She hopes that nothing ever shows. She sat for an hour on the terrace of the hotel, working it out. Say something, she thought, and as soon as she does, it'll be out in the open. The next thing is he'll be putting it gently to her that nothing is as it should be. Gently, because he always has been gentle, especially about her barren state, sorry for her, dutiful in their plight, tied to her. He'd have had an eastern child, any little slit-eyed thing. But when she hadn't been able to see it, he'd been good about that, too. Sets the place off when the windows is done, I always say. Yes, of course. He came back from his swim, and the letter from a woman who played an instrument in an orchestra was already torn into little pieces in a waste bin in the car park, the most distant one she could find. Awfully good this, she said when he came and sat beside her. Some do not was the book she laid aside. He said he had read it at school. I'll do the windowsills when they've been. Shocking with flies July is filthy, really. I'll see if I can get them next week. There hadn't been an address, just a date, September 4th. No need for an address, because of course he knew it, and from the letter's tone he had for ages. She wondered what that meant, and couldn't think of a time when a change had begun in his manner towards her. There hadn't been one. And in other ways, too, he was, as he always had been, unhurried in his movements and his speech, his square, healthy features the same terracotta shade, the gray in his hair in no way diminishing his physical attractiveness. It was hardly surprising that someone else found him attractive, too. Driving up through France and back again in England, she became used to pretending in his company that the person called Elspeth did not exist, 
while endlessly conjecturing when she was alone. I'll do the stairs down, Marietta says, and then I'll scoot, dear. Yes, you run along whenever you're ready. I'll put in the extra Friday, dear, three quarters of an hour, I owe all told. Oh, please don't worry. Fair's fair, dear, only I like to catch the twenty past today with Bernardo anxious for his dinner. Yes, of course you must. The house is silent when Marietta has left, and Mrs. Lethwes feels free again. The day is hers now, until the evening. She can go from room to room in stockinged feet and let the telephone ring unanswered. She can watch, if the mood takes her, some old black-and-white film on the television, an English one, for she likes those best, pretty girls' voices from the 1940s, Michael Wilding Young again, Anne Todd. She doesn't have much lunch. She never does during the week. A bit of cheese on the Ritz biscuits she has a weakness for, gin and dry martini twice. In her spacious sitting room, Mrs. Lethwest slips her shoes off and stretches out onto one of the room's two sofas. Then the first sharp tang of the martini causes her, for a moment, to close her eyes with pleasure. Silver-framed, a reminder of her wedding day stands on a round inlaid surface among other photographs nearby. August 26, 1974. The date floats through her midday thoughts. I know this'll work out, her mother, given to speaking openly, had remarked the evening before, when she met for the first time the parents of her daughter's fiancé. The remark had caused a silence, then someone laughed. She reaches for a ritz. The soft brown hair that's hardly visible beneath the bridal veil is blonded now, and longer than it was, which is why she wears it gathered up, suitable in middle age. She was pretty then, and is handsome now, still loose-limbed. She has put on only a little weight. Her teeth are still white and sound. Only her light blue eyes, once brilliantly clear, are blurred, like eyes caught out of focus. Afterwards, her mother's remark on the night before the wedding became a joke, because of course the marriage had worked out. A devoted couple, a perfect marriage, people said, and still say, perhaps, except for the pity of there being no children. It's most unlikely, Mrs. Lethwest believes, that anyone much knows about his other woman. He wouldn't want that. He wouldn't want his wife humiliated. That was never his style. Mrs. Lethwest, who smokes one cigarette a day, smokes it now as she lies on the sofa, not yet pouring her second drink. On later September holidays, there had been no letters. Of that, she was certain. Some alarm had been raised by the one that didn't find its intended destination. Dreadful, he would have considered it, a liaison discovered by chance, and would have felt afraid. Please understand, I'm awfully sorry, he would have said, and Elspeth would naturally have honored his wishes, even though writing to him when he was away was precious. No more, that's all. On her feet again to pour her second drink, Mrs. Lethwes firmly makes this resolution, speaking aloud, since there is no one to be surprised by that. But a little later, she finds herself rooting beneath underclothes in a bedroom drawer, and finding there another bottle of Gordon's, and pouring some, and adding water from a bathroom tap. The bottle is returned, the fresh drink carried downstairs, the Ritz packet put away, the glass she drank her two cocktails from washed and dried and returned to where the glasses are kept. Opaque, blue to match the bathroom paint, the container she drinks from now is a toothbrush beaker, and holds more than the sedate cocktail glass, three times as much almost. The taste is different, the plastic beaker feels different in her grasp, not stemmed and cool as the glass was, warmer on her lips. The morning that has passed seems far away as the afternoon advances, 
as the afternoon connects with the afternoon of yesterday and of the day before, a repetition that must have a beginning somewhere, but now is lost. He is with her now. They are together in the flat she shares with no one, being an independent girl. At three o'clock, that is Mrs. Lethwes's thought. Excuses are not difficult. In his position in the office, he would not even have to make them. Lunch with the kind of business people he often refers to, lunch in the Milano or the Petit Escargot, and then a taxi to the flat that is a second home. Surprise, he says on the doorstep intercom, and takes his jacket off while she makes tea. I'll not be back this afternoon, is all he has said on the phone to his bespectacled and devoted secretary. They sit by the French windows that open onto a small balcony and are open now. It is a favorite place in summer, geraniums blooming in the balcony's two ornamental containers, the passers-by on the street below viewed through metal scrolls that decorate the balustrade, the drawn-back curtains undisturbed by breezes. The teacups are a shade of pink. The talk is about the orchestra, where it is going next, how long she'll be away, the dates precisely given, because that's important. In winter, the imagined scene is similar, except that they sit by the gas fire beneath the reproduction of Field of Poppies, the curtains drawn because it's darkening outside, even as early as this. In winter, there's Mahler on the CD player, instead of the passers-by to watch. Why couldn't it be, Mrs. Lethwes wonders at ten past five, when a film featuring George Fromby comes to an end? Why couldn't it be that he would come back this evening and confess there has been a miscalculation? She is to have a child. Why shouldn't it be that he might say simply that? And how could Elspeth, busy with her orchestra, traveling to Cleveland and Chicago and San Francisco, to Rome and Seville and Nice and Berlin, possibly be a mother? And yet, of course, Elspeth would want his child. Women do when they're in love. Vividly, Mrs. Lethwes sees this child, a tiny girl on a rug in the garden, a sunshade propped up, Mr. Yat bent among the dwarf sweet peas, and Marietta saying in the kitchen, My, my, theirs looks for you. The child is his, Mrs. Lethwes reflects, pouring again. At least what has happened is halfway there to what might have been if the child was hers also. Beggars can't be choosers. At fifteen minutes past five, fear sets in, the same fear there was on the terrace of the Hotel St. George when the letter was still between her fingers. He will go from her. It is pity that keeps him with a barren woman. He will find the courage, and with it will come the hardness of heart that is not naturally his. Then he will go. Once not long ago, or maybe it was a year ago, hard to be accurate now, she said on an impulse that she had been wrong to resist the adoption of an unwanted child, wrong to say a child for them must only be his and hers. In response, he shook his head. Adoption would not be easy now, he said, in their middle age, and that was that. Some other day, on the television, there was a woman who took an infant from a pram, and she felt sympathy for that woman then, though no one else did. Whenever she saw a baby in a pram, she thought of the woman taking it, and at other times, she thought of that girl who walked away with the baby she was meant to be looking after, and the woman who took one from a hospital ward. When she told him she felt sympathy, he put his arms around her and wiped away her tears. This afternoon, the fear lasts for half an hour. Then, at a quarter to six, it is so much nonsense. Never in a thousand years would he develop that hardness of heart. I have to go now, he says in his friend's flat. They cease their observation of the passers-by below. Again they embrace, and then he goes. The touch of her lips goes with him, her regretful smile, 
her fragile fingers, where for so long that afternoon they rested in his hand. He drives through traffic, perfectly knowing the way, not having to think. And in the flat she plays her music and finds in it a consolation. It is his due to have his other woman. On the hotel terrace she decided that. In the hour she sat there with the letter not yet destroyed, everything fell into place. She knew she must never say she had discovered what she had. She knew she didn't want him ever not to be there. Lovers quarrel, love affairs end. What life is it for Elspeth? Scraps from a marriage he won't let go of. Why shouldn't she tire of waiting? No, he says, when Elspeth cheats, allowing her pregnancy to occur in order to force his hand. Still, he says he can't, and all there is is a mess where once there was romance. He turns to his discarded wife, and there between them is his confession. She travels, you see. She has to travel. She won't give up her music. How quickly should there be forgiveness? Should there be some pretense of anger? Should there be tears? His friend set a trap for him, his voice goes on, a tender trap, as in the song. That is where his weakness has landed him. His voice apologizes and asks for understanding and for mercy. His other woman has played her part, although she never knew it. Without his other woman, there could not be a happy ending. She sets the table for their dinner, the tweed mats, the cutlery, the pepper mill, the German mustard, glasses for wine because he deserves a little wine after his day, Chateau Neuf de Pop. The bottles on the table, opened earlier because she knows to do that from experience. It's difficult later on to open wine with all the rush of cooking, and the wine should breathe. Years ago he taught her that. In the kitchen she begins to cut the fat off the pork chops she bought that morning, a long time ago it seems now. Marietta's recipe she's intending to do, pork chops in tomato sauce, onions and peppers. On the mottled working surface, the blue toothbrush beaker is almost full again, reached out for often. The meat slides about, although, in actual fact, it doesn't move. It is necessary to be careful with the knife. Her little finger is wrapped in a band-aid from a week ago. On the radio, Humphrey Littleton asks his teams to announce the late arrivals at the Undertaker's Ball. Of course, Mrs. Lethwest says aloud. Of course we'll offer it a home. At five to seven, acting instinctively as she does every evening at about this time, Mrs. Lethwest washes the blue plastic beaker and replaces it in the bathroom. Twice, before she hears the car wheels on the tarmac, she raises the gin bottle directly to her lips, then pours herself, conventionally, a cocktail of Gordon's and Martini. She knows it will happen tonight. She knows he will enter with a worry in his features and stand by the door, not coming forward for a moment, that he'll pour himself a drink too, and sit down slowly and begin to tell her, I'm sorry is probably how he'll put it, and she'll stop him, telling him she can guess. And after he has spoken for twenty minutes, covering all the ground that has been lost, she'll say, of course, the child must come here. The noisy up-and-over garage door falls into place. In a hurry, Mrs. Lethwest raises the green bottle to her lips because suddenly she feels the need for it. She does so again before there is the darkness that sometimes comes, arriving suddenly today, just as she is whispering to herself that tomorrow, all day long, she'll not take anything at all, and thinking also that, for tonight, the open wine will be enough, and if it isn't, there's always more that can be broached. For after all, tonight is a time for celebration— a schoolgirl on a summer's day, just like the one that has passed, occupies the upper room where only visitors sleep. She comes downstairs and chatters on, 
about her friends, her teachers, a worry she has, not understanding a poem, and together at the kitchen table they read it through. Oh, I do love you, Mrs. Lethwest thinks, while there is imagery and words rhyme. On the mottled worktop in the kitchen, the meat is where Mrs. Lethwest left it, the fat partly cut away, the knife still separating it from one of the chops. The potatoes she scraped earlier in the day are in a saucepan of cold water, the peas she shelled in another. Often in the evenings it is like that in the kitchen when her husband returns to their house. He is gentle when he carries her, as he always is. That was Jhumpa Lahiri reading A Day by William Trevor. It's collected in his book After Rain, which is published by Penguin. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc. Copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. Jumpa, a, a day doesn't really have a plot. It moves through this so, slow series of revelations. And by the end, we know a lot more than we knew at the beginning. But nothing has actually really changed in the lives of its characters. And this day ends the same way that the day before seems to have ended. It's kind of an unusual story structure. I don't think it's unusual. I never think of... I think if a story works, it works. Um, I think that it's so hard to write a story that is essentially static in which the the main character has very little conversation. Um, the only conversation she really has in the entire story is a very kind of painfully boring conversation with her maid. But But what it serves to do is to really show how intensely isolated she is to the point of, you know, keeping out of the garden when the gardener's there, trying to keep away from the house when the housekeeper's there, uh, and to realize how she shut herself off from everything and everyone and and has a very sort of careful ritualized type of day there are so many secrets at play in the story secrets that people think they're keeping but don't realize they aren't keeping and and there's so many i mean the husband has his secret 
He doesn't think the wife knows. She does know. You know, She thinks she's secretly drinking. But of course, the husband knows. And then really, if you look more deeply, she knows that he knows, but it's the unspoken. And, and that's what... He also knows that she knows about the affair. Yes, yes. So <laughs> the, it's, you know, and it's so much a portrait of of a marriage and a life. When you read a story like this that's set entirely in the in the course of one day in the life of a woman, the, the obvious thing you think of is Mrs. Dalloway. Um, and do you think that was an influence here? Maybe. But I think that in, in addition to the time, the sense of, you know, just the narrow band of time, the way that he can bring a character who is alone mm-hmm. out and and to dramatize her solitude, I think that's really a very hard thing to do. And it's so economical, it's so swift, the many turns we take into her past, into her deep past, into her childhood, Mm -hmm. her years as a young woman, the glimpse of her getting married, the sort of years in between, the, the years leading up to hoping she'll have a child, and then that turning point in which she reconciles herself to right. never having a child. I mean, you're getting, you are getting a life. Yeah, you could call you're, it a life you're, as you well could as call a it, day. <laughs> easily call it a life. Um, yeah. One thing about Trevor is that, that that's quite unique is that he's able or willing to keep the reader really in the dark for a long stretch of time. There's the part at the beginning where she, um, Mrs. Lethwis apologizes knowing now. You have no idea what she knows until the very last paragraph mm-hmm. of the story. Mm-hmm. It seems it must be quite difficult for the writer to be willing to keep the reader in this sort of area of vagueness and darkness for an entire story. Is that something you've ever tried to do? or not? No, I think I'm not there yet. <laughs> no, I think I'm still at the stage where I, I want to be clear and, and keep the reader moving forward. But I think with someone like Trevor, with someone so at ease and so richly aware of the many ways of telling a story. I mean, I think from the very first sentence, there's, I mean, there's the element of the language, the sheer beauty of his language that pulls me into it. Mm-hmm. No matter what is going on, and even if I'm not quite sure what everything means, I know it will all mean something. I mean, there's just, yeah. a, I, I just trust him so profoundly you know at at this point having mm-hmm. having known his work since 1992 or 3 the other way in which he keeps us in the dark is even at the end of the story we have no idea how much of what mrs lethwis thinks is true and how much how much of her fantasy life we should believe presumably there was an affair we have no idea if it's still going on we certainly have no idea if the way she imagines elspeth is how elspeth actually is and no idea whether there was ever a pregnancy or will be. How much do you think we're, we're supposed to think Mrs. Lethwitz has right? I don't think it matters. I mean, yeah. I think that's the thing about if you've been betrayed, that's the issue. And the details of it, which she so carefully imagines down to the color of the teacups, you know, um, I think she's just constructed all of that out of her loneliness, and it tells a lot about her, that she's an imaginative person, that she can think about something in that sort of detail that is a little bit chilling and indicates that she's really not all there, um, mm-hmm. that she's not your average jealous wife who's out yeah. to, you know, I mean, I think the average jealous wife might just follow her husband one day and find out where this apartment is and ring the doorbell. And right. But there's something about her 
I mean, she's so sad and she's so helpless and pathetic in so many ways, and yet there's a strength to her. There's an ability to see from a point of view that I think saves her from simply being a sad, pathetic, alcoholic woman. Do you know what I'm saying? There's There's, a real sense of self-preservation. Yes, yes, and that sense of, you know, and many steps of, you know, I don't want to be without him. You know, I'm not going to confront him about this because I don't want to be alone. Mm -hmm. And then taking it from there and, you know, sort of imagining the child and and all Mm -hmm. of that. People often talk about the sadness and quietness and loneliness in Trevor's work. And in fact, to me, he seems also a very funny writer. There's a lot of comedy, the sort of comedy of the human condition in his writing. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I I think that the lives he portrays are very painful to encounter. And yet I think of his stories as very full of light. I never think of him as a dark, grim sort Mm -hmm. of writer at all, even though he confronts some of the darkest and grimmest aspects of, of the human condition. But there's a sense of light always sort of infusing the stories. Mm-hmm. Even here, the comedy of just where the gin bottle is and what she's pouring when and yeah, and these sort of things that you can laugh at at the same time as you find them moving. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Trevor is so good at, at getting all of the very small details of domestic life, you know, the separating the fat from the pork chops or whether something in the garden is a weed or a plant that's been put there, all of these little things that sort of make up the actual lines of the story but in fact, they're kind of a soundtrack that's happening above the emotional drama. And that, that's something that I've seen you do in your work. There's, there's often a lot of domestic detail that's happening while something really much deeper and more emotional is going on behind it. Do you think that he was an influence in that way for you? Oh, sure. I mean, he's taught me so much, you know, and I, and I think that, yeah, I mean, a story like this can teach so much in terms of just being so specific and yet not being excessive in terms of those types of details. I mean, it's so visual, the ability to see when you read one of his stories, you can you can see the world instantly and the types of gestures that he puts in. I mean, I love that gesture of in the beginning of the story when she wakes up and goes to the window and parts the curtain and then lets it go almost instantly. You You, you see, you know who she is in that gesture because you see that she's very... She doesn't want to look. She doesn't want to look. She doesn't want to see. She doesn't want to be affected in a way by what is around her. And I always remember that image, that final image of the meat left on the cutting board. There's so many things I've tried to understand and learn about stories from him. Thank you, Jumpa. Thank you. You can read several of Jumpa Lahiri's short stories on our website, newyorker.com. Also, watch for her latest story, Year's End, in the Christmas fiction issue of the magazine. A new collection of her stories, Unaccustomed Earth, will be published by Knopf in April. To listen to previous fiction podcasts, as well as other free New Yorker podcasts, go to the iTunes store and type New Yorker into the search bar. You can also download the weekly audio edition of the magazine through iTunes or audible.com. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by newyorker.com and Curtis Fox Productions. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.